don't know if you remember this group or not, but they had a major hit. Back in 95, Dishwalla released an album, and it had this song called Counting Blue Cars. And it reached as high as 15 on the Billboard Hot 100. Two years later, actually the second and third year after it was released, it had won awards for the most played song on the radio in America. They sang these words. Must have been mid-afternoon, as I could tell, by how far the child's shadow stretched out. And he walked with a purpose in his sneakers down the street. He had many questions, like children often do. He said, tell me all your thoughts on God, and tell me, am I very far? I don't know if that rings a bell in your mind, if you're old enough to remember that, but that song kind of captured our culture and for many reasons, as the song unpacks. But that's a fascinating question. That would be a really fun experiment this week, to ask different people, tell me all your thoughts on God. No doubt you probably get a number of different responses, but I wonder what the answers would be. On the one hand, it seems like there could be as many different answers as there are people in this world. And as fascinating as it would be to hear what people say, it would probably be very frustrating as well. Surely there ought to be a better way to come to good and true knowledge of God. And so I want to ask this question as we get ready to open our study today. What if we could go to God ourselves, or better yet, what if God came to us and told us exactly what he is like? Now, if that question, however preposterous it may seem off the cuff, can stir your imagination, then you are in a very good place to understand the good news that Jesus has to offer. That he would make the case with us that this is exactly why he was born, to communicate, to reveal who God is. And so the Advent season dares to insist that God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ for us and for our salvation so that we may not only know who he is, but to actually know him and to move into relationship with him at his invitation. That is the good and scandalous news of the Christmas message. And we're going to call our study today Rejoicing When God Comes Home for Christmas. And let me just say I know right off the bat this is a little bit of a hokey title. But I wanted to try to capture a sentiment that we have in our culture of coming home for Christmas to get our minds wrapped around the message that God in Christ came to our home, to, to this earth, to reveal himself to us, to secure redemption for people like us, and to invite us into his presence. And so I want us to pray for just a moment as we get ready to open the Gospel of John and ask the Lord to, to be with us and to teach us this day. So let's pray together. Lord, we could ask the question of everyone we meet, tell us all your thoughts on God. And no doubt there'd be some overlap. No doubt there'd be differences of opinion. But thank you that we don't have to rely just on people's opinion, that we have something more sure and certain. And if we have ears to hear, which we pray that you would grant us, Help us to understand the message of the gospel of Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension into glory, and his promise to come again to renew all things. As we contemplate this 
Christmas message from the Gospel of John. Give us ears to hear. Help us to understand what you want us to see, to hear, to believe this day. And so meet us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. As we get ready to look at the opening chapter of the Gospel of John, let me just remind you or introduce you to who John was. John was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. He was part of the inner circle of disciples of Jesus' closest friends. He was a man who wrote this gospel we're going to look at, this historical biography of Jesus. He wrote several other books that are compiled for us in the New Testament, including the book of Revelation. And towards the end of his life, because of his testimony for Jesus, the empire of Rome banished him to exile on the island of Patmos. And so this is who is writing the message of the gospel for us. And he's writing with a purpose. And he wants us to understand who Jesus is. And so he begins... This message, this historical biography with Jesus, with some very epic words. Listen to how it begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is an interesting way to begin a gospel, isn't it? To tell us about the story of Jesus. He opens he with these words, in the beginning, and, and it's supposed to resonate within us the echo from the opening pages of the Bible, the book of Genesis, that tells us in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So John is intentionally taking the language from the story of God in Genesis, and he's crafting it around the person of Jesus to help us understand something epic about who Jesus is. One scholar by the name of N.T. Wright in his commentary helps us to understand some of the connections being made here. He said, this book, speaking of the Gospel of John, this book is about the creator God acting in a new way within his much-beloved creation. It is about the way in which the long story, which began in Genesis, reaches the climax the creator had always intended. In Genesis 1, the climax is the creation of humans. In John 1, the climax is the arrival of a human being. I think that's so insightful. And so John, in introducing us to this human being, introduces us to him in a peculiar way. He tells us in the beginning was the Word. He said the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, what is he getting at here? <laughs> that word in the Greek language is a word that can be translated word, like it is in the translation I'm using, speech or utterance. It can be used as indicating a message or announcement. It can indicate the study of. For example, we, we think of biology as the study of life, or theology as the study of God, or ecology as the study of the environment. It can be used in that way, or it can be used to describe the reason for something. In fact, in the Greek world at that time, that's exactly how it was used. Greek philosophers thought there was a, a rational but impersonal principle behind everything in existence. And they called it the logos, which is the, the Greek word for word. And John is playing with both the Hebrew background to the Greek language as well as this idea floating around in Roman Greco culture about an organizing principle that enables us to make sense of this world. And so what he's going to tell us is that organizing principle is not a thing, but it's a person. So he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
Don't you want to ask the Apostle John some questions here? What do you mean something was with God and that same something was God? How do you make sense of that? And I think the Apostle would tell us, I know I'm stretching the boundaries of language. I'm trying to get our minds wrapped around something which is really almost entirely inconceivable if we didn't learn it from Jesus himself. This is one of those verses that is the building blocks for what we call the Trinity. This idea that God, the supreme being, is one being but exists in three persons. This is a mind-boggling concept that we could never have come up with unless it was built upon the foundation of what Jesus himself taught, as well as his early apostles teaching us what Jesus taught. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist together eternally in a community of love. So John is tapping into this. He's not explaining a whole lot for us right now, but he wants to let us know that the Word was with God and the Word was God. He tells us in verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's a little cumbersome there in the English. But he tells us that this person he's going to introduce us to by the name of Jesus, that person before he was born, existed. He existed with God. He existed as God. And he brought creation into existence so that we can say there's not a single thing in this universe that came into existence that he is not responsible for. Later on, the Apostle Paul, after his conversion meeting Christ, is going to write to some, some Christians living in the ancient Roman city of Colossae. And he's going to tell them about Jesus, and he says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That firstborn is simply a way of saying the preeminent one of all creation. He continues, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Apostle Paul, along with the Apostle John, wants us to, to get our minds around something that is significant about Jesus. He is the reason you exist. And he is the reason why anything exists. And I know that sounds crazy. And John would say, I know that sounds crazy. And the Apostle Paul would say, I know that sounds crazy. But we have met him, and we testify about who he is. A little bit later in John chapter 1, the Apostle is going to say, the word became flesh. This entity that was with God and that was God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here he tells us that the word became flesh in verse 14. And he tells us that, that he dwelt among us. Now it's interesting, that word dwelt is, is a Greek word that means to encamp or to pitch one's tent, to abide or to live with. And some people argue that the, the best way to translate this is the idea of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The story of God with the people of Israel. Remember, there's a tabernacle that eventually was replaced by the temple. And this is where God would dwell among the people of Israel. And so these scholars would argue that the best way to translate this is this word 
tabernacled among us, pitched its tent among us. I love the way that Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the New Testament, summarizes this. He said, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Now, that's a paraphrase, but he's trying to get the idea of what the, the Greek language is communicating, what the apostle is communicating. He's wanting to understand that this, this word that was with God and was God came and enfleshed himself and dwelt among us. And this is, as we mentioned previously in our study, what scholars refer to as the incarnation, literally the enfleshment of God, or what we would call the, the embodiment. Tim Keller, pastor and best-selling author, helps us to understand the uniqueness of what is being communicated in the gospel message. Listen to what he says. No other religion, whether secularism, Greco-Roman paganism, Eastern religion, Judaism, or Islam, believes God became breakable or had a body. Eastern religion believes the physical is illusion, Greco-Romans believe the physical is bad. Judaism and Islam don't believe God would do such a thing as live in the flesh. Now, don't misunderstand what Pastor Keller is getting at here. He's not trying to diss other religions or philosophies of life. He's trying to help you understand the, the uniqueness of the message of Jesus. He is unlike anything that we can get our minds around. He is God become flesh. And so we sing this at Christmas in the song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. We're going to conclude our service with this song. It has this one line in it that reads like this. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Godhead is simply an old English term referring to the divine nature. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Sometimes the familiarity of these Christmas songs can help, I don't want to say help, it blunts the scandal of what's being said. If I can just maybe paraphrase this in slightly different language. See God clothed in flesh. Praise the divine being in a human body. Please to live in flesh with us. Jesus is our God with us. So my friends, here is a key thought. It is possible to speak highly of Jesus. In fact, it's possible to speak very, very highly of Jesus and yet not speak highly enough. It is possible to say Jesus was a great man. It is possible to say he was a great teacher. It is even possible to say he had the best philosophy and way of thinking about things that any human being has come up with. And all of that would be true. And all of that would be speaking very highly of Jesus. But we can say all of that and still not speak highly enough of him. John is going to go on. Well, let me just refer back to verse 14 again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. The apostle tells us in 1 John that we, we touched Jesus. We heard from him. We saw his glory. 
And this is a word that all throughout the Hebrew scriptures is weighted with significance. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, and he was full of grace and truth. What a beautiful description of Jesus. It's a very high compliment to tell someone that they are very gracious. And it's a very high compliment of someone to tell them that they are true speakers. But in Jesus, we get someone who combines the best of both of those. He is full of grace, and he is full of truth. What a beautiful description of him. And John will go on in verse 18 and say, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. And here again, he's, he's straining with the English language. Well, actually, it's a Greek language he wrote in, but here the English translation strains to get our minds wrapped around something that is just hard to get our minds wrapped around. No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. That phrase, made him known, is the word that we have in English, when it's translated into English, is exegete. Now, if you've been around anyone teaching on how to study the Bible, we talk about exegesis. This is what we do every Sunday morning. We study the scriptures, and we draw out of the scriptures the, the meaning of the scriptures. We're not trying to read into it what we think, but we're trying to have the scriptures tell us what it thinks. And so what John is saying is that Jesus exegeted God for us. He told us, exactly who he was, and he communicated it very plainly. There's an interesting place later in the Gospel of John. It's actually on the night that Jesus is betrayed. It's some of the last things he communicated to his disciples. And he said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, I know if you are a Christian, you've heard these words before. And we're tempted to, to hear them and just to read over them and go, yeah, yeah, this is exactly the kind of thing Jesus would say. But let's just stop here for a second. Let's just say my friend Kenny were to walk in the room this morning, and as we get ready for church, he would say, yeah, I just want you guys to, to know something. I, I want your hearts not to be troubled. So believe in God this morning, but also believe in me. We would think Kenny's lost a few marbles, <laughs> We would say, Kenny, you shouldn't say things like that. There is no, there's no possible world in which you can put you and God in the same sentence and to say, as you believe in God, you should believe in me. But that's exactly what Jesus does. And he says things like this all the time. So he tells his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And he would go on and say, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip, this is one of his disciples, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Again, this is, if anyone else said something like this, this would be crazy. If Leslie said to us, if you've seen me, you've seen God, 
We want to get medical help for that person really fast, right? So hear the scandalous claim of Jesus. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This is also why later on, the writer to the Hebrews, this book in the Bible that we have, would begin his book by saying this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John, Paul, this writer to the Hebrews, the early followers of Jesus, want us to understand that this baby that is born, that we celebrate this time of the year, is the eternal God who upholds everything by the word of his power. And he took on flesh and became breakable. He moved into the neighborhood and we've known him. I appreciate this quote from the late Anglican minister, John Stott. He said, if you find it hard to believe in God, I strongly advise you to begin your search, not with philosophical questions, but with Jesus of Nazareth. Some of you may know that I studied philosophy here at Texas A&M. That was my major. And one of the reasons I studied philosophy is I wanted to hear all the best thoughts that people had on the existence of God through the ages. I wanted to hear the best arguments against that. I wanted, I wanted to sit at the feet of some of the wisest people who have lived and say, tell me all your thoughts on God. And let me tell you, everything I heard pales in significance to the revelation of Jesus, all the thoughts Jesus had about God. And so here the minister tells us, if you want to understand who God is, don't start with philosophical questions. Those are great. There's a place to ask those. Start with the person of Jesus. It's been said that you have a category of people who have claimed to be God. And you have a category of people who, can, who have convinced everyone or millions and millions of people, I should say, that that's true. And Jesus is only one in both those categories. And so let me ask you this question. If Jesus is the best explanation, if he is the best evidence of who God is, then what would that mean for you? If Jesus is God taking on human flesh and coming home for Christmas, so to speak, moving into the neighborhood to communicate who he was, who he is, what would that mean for you? Wouldn't you want to hear everything that person had to say? Would you hang your life on who he is? John also tells us in this first chapter, in verse 9, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He's speaking of this word now as light, Changes the metaphor. He says he's coming into the world. Later on in this gospel, he's going to quote Jesus as saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? 
He's saying, if you listen to me, if you believe me, if you entrust yourself to me, you will become enlightened. I love what C.S. Lewis said. I, I think I've shared this quote with you before. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. C.S. Lewis, this one-time atheistic professor at the University of Oxford, came to believe in who Jesus was. And he said, it has changed everything. It changes the way I see everything. So if we're asked the question to C.S. Lewis, what is the significance of Jesus being the best explanation and evidence of God mean to you? He would say it means everything. Just like the sun enables us to see everything in our world, so Jesus enables us to understand the meaning of life. By it, by him, we see everything else. So John tells us the true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. Here he's talking about the scandalous rejection of Jesus. God took on flesh, moved into the neighborhood, came to dwell with his people, and his own people rejected him. We think about his very first sermon that he preached in his hometown of Nazareth. And they tried to kill him. And we think about how the religious leaders who hated the Roman authorities nevertheless joined forces with them to put Jesus to death. God came to us to tell us what he was like, to show us what he was like. And we put him to death. John's going to tell us later in his gospel, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. People didn't like the light that Jesus shined in their life. They didn't like the fact that he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so, because their deeds were evil, not only did they hide from the light, they tried to extinguish it. John tells us in verse 12 of chapter 1, but to all, that means to anyone who receives him, but to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Here he tells us that Jesus came and part of his mission was to preach the good news, to show us what God was like. That if we believed in him, if we receive him, and as if we center our lives upon him, give him our life, he gives us the right to become children of God. John would later in one of his other letters say, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we, that you and I, should be called the children of God. And so we are. Because of Jesus, because of the grace he offers to people like you and me, people who would rather hide, people who if, there, if we were there on that day of Jesus' crucifixion would have been shouting and thinking, man, this is great. We put to death the light of life. That same God showers blessings upon us when we turn to him. 
And he receives us into his family. So here's the bottom line that we can communicate, hopefully in a very clear way. If you want to know God, you have to get to know Jesus. Because in Jesus, God has made himself known. If you want to get to know God, you have to get to know Jesus. Because in Jesus, God has made himself known. My friends, that is the scandalous story of Christmas. And so just a couple points of application. (laughs) The story of Christmas is all about Jesus. I find it interesting, as probably you do at this time of the year, we hear feel-good stories and and things that just give us warm fuzzies on the inside, and someone will come along and say, that's what Christmas is all about. And I know what they're trying to communicate. But warm fuzzies and sentimentality and even good things that people do is not what Christmas is all about. Christmas is all about Jesus. You can have all the warm fuzzies in the world, and you can, you can drown in sentimentality. But if you're not rocked by Jesus, you'll have missed the intended meaning of Christmas. John will, towards the end of his gospel, tell us this. He's telling us why he's introducing Jesus to us. And at the end of his gospel, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The whole reason John is trying to get our minds to wrap around the fact that Jesus was with God and Jesus was God and Jesus took on human flesh was so that you and I can believe in him and have eternal life. And so that Christmas is all about Jesus, but the story of Christmas also includes us. So if we think about that song by Dishwalla, And the question that was asked, tell me all your thoughts on God and tell me, am I very far? We can answer the first part of that with what Jesus taught. And tell me if I'm very far, how would we answer that question? I I think we should say yes and no. The Bible tells us not only were our deeds evil and we hide from God, but that all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. No one seeks after God, No one searches after God. And yet God comes seeking and searching after us. So on the one hand, God is very far. We put the barrier in place. And yet he's as near as a simple cry for mercy. John will tell us in his letter, God is love. In this, the love of God was manifest. It was manifest among us that God sent his son into the world that we might live through him. We have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. So we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. You see, my friends, the Christmas story is all about Jesus, but it's meant to include us. And it's meant to include us so that our stories might be wrapped up in the good story of Jesus, that we might experience the love that he wants to pour out into your life, into mine. My friends, I know some of you have tasted of the love of God. But let me just say, we have have sampled it. There is so much more for us to experience. It is an ocean that we can lose ourselves in. We can experience as much as we want. The question is, how much do we want to experience? We have come to know and believe, we might even say experience the love 
that God has for us. John tells us also, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, showers us with grace. And when we think we've run out of grace, there's more grace. And then there's even more grace beyond that. It's like opening presents for Christmas and the presents just keep coming. It never comes to an end. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so, my friends, the Christmas story is about Jesus. It is meant to include us. But it leaves us with a challenge to make room in our lives for God. Early in the service, we sang Joy to the World and has this line, let every heart prepare him room. It is a call for all of us, maybe for the first time or the hundredth time, to open our lives to all that God is for us in Christ Jesus and to open it so that we can, be, we can experience his grace and his love and to be drawn into it. There's a great book by Rankin Wilkin. I'm closing. Wilkin, I'm, I'm sorry. Getting too fast here. I'm trying to wrap this up. There's a wonderful book called Union with Christ by Rankin Wilburn. And he said this. He is not a stagehand in the play you are writing and starring in. You are no longer the star of the show. It's not about you. He displaced you from the center of your life. Let me pause here. All, all of us tend to think of our life as, as this drama and we're the star. I mean, after all, we're in every scene of our lives, right? <laughs> but Wilburn says, God is not a stagehand in the play you're writing and starring in. You are no longer the star of the show. It's not about you. He has displaced you from the center of your life. But his new role means you get to be a part of something bigger than your own autobiography. You are invited into God's story, the biggest and the best story of them all. My friends, some of us have some very fascinating lives, but, but really at the end of the day, it's boring if it's not centered on Jesus. And so my friends, may you find yourself wrapped up in the story that is the bigger and better story that any of us could tell, the story of God who invites us into that. So my friends, may this Christmas season be a season where you rejoice that God has come home for Christmas in the person of his son.